Welcome back to the Z Files. I am Professor Z, and I will be your host for this episode. This podcast is your one-stop shop for all things crime-related. I use my eight years of research and three years as a criminology professor to cram each episode with facts about crime patterns, statistics, criminal behavior, and tips for improving your personal safety. Say goodbye to the fear you think you have about crime, and say hello to your new expertise in the field of criminology. Let's start this episode with a fun fact. Actually, it's really more disturbing than fun. Your zip code will determine how long you live. That's right, I said it. So why? Well, you'll have to keep listening to get to the rest of that. But this episode is going to be centered on how certain deaths are caused by government irresponsibility. And I wanted to do this topic because it's in line with our series. We've already looked at how death can be a result of crime and how death can be the result of corporate greed. So now we're going to look specifically at the United States government and how decisions have been made that literally cost people their lives. We can't be firefighters witnessing a blaze and not trying to extinguish it. So I provide the information in this episode in the hopes that someone will be able to think of a solution to provide to someone else in power. Social scientists have uncovered the obvious fact that neighborhood location has a major impact on health. Your social environment can make you more prone to disease, expose you to more harm, and determine the course and outcome of an illness more than any biological property. And social environment isn't referring to the weather that's in your area or if you live near the ocean or the mountains. Your social environment is your immediate physical and social setting that you live in. This includes the cultural practices in your area, as well as the people and institutions you interact with every day. And it's the responsibility of the reigning government in a place to ensure that the social environment of its people is providing good quality of life. A less appreciated factor in neighborhood health is looking at what jobs are provided in an area. And what we see typically is that when urban centers are abandoned by industrial or manufacturing establishments, a decrease in health follows. Between 1967 and 1987, manufacturing companies moved out of city centers taking jobs and billions of dollars with them. Detroit lost 51% of manufacturing jobs. New York lost 58%. And Philadelphia lost 64%. Now, once again, these jobs vanished because company executives chose to move the jobs to other countries that had more relaxed salary laws so they could hire people for longer hours and lower pay. Let's use Flint, Michigan to demonstrate this relationship between a lack of employment opportunities and poor health outcomes. Flint was previously a thriving metropolis supported by an automobile plant. As manufacturing jobs vanished from the area, the town suffered generations of job loss and economic hardship. By 2008, the town was on the verge of bankruptcy. The state of Michigan appointed emergency managers to essentially act as dictators over the town's affairs. These people reported to the Treasury Department of the state, and not to the town's people. So, goodbye democratic process there. In order to save money in 2014, These managers decided to change the town's water source from the Detroit Water and Sewage Department to the Flint River. Residents immediately expressed concern over the water safety, especially as General Motors reported water from the Flint River was corroding newly machined parts. State officials reassured residents the water was safe, but when people grew sicker and the water could literally be ignited with a match straight from the tap, 
the charade was over. As it turns out, the amount of lead in the water was high enough to classify it as hazardous waste. Consuming this water leads to a phenomenon known as Legionnaire's disease. Some county officials wanted to investigate the outbreak of the disease in relationship to the water, but they were met with resistance from the city and state government. Even the Detroit Water and Sewage Department offered to reconnect to the city, but the manager at the time declined. Meanwhile, the water continued to poison the people and damage the existing plumbing infrastructure. It wasn't until a newly elected mayor declared a state of emergency and President Obama released $5 million in emergency relief that officials rethought the situation in Flint. Today, former Michigan Governor Rick Snyder pleaded not guilty to misdemeanor charges he willfully neglected his duty during the Flint water crisis, his lawyer calling it political persecution. Eight other former officials and aides were also charged in connection to the scandal, two with involuntary manslaughter. The state of Michigan boasts that only 12 people died as a result of the water. First of all, I hate the word only combined with anything to do with death. Death is a big deal in any number. Second of all, they lied. On careful examination of the data, you will actually find that there were 70 deaths in the same time period as a result of complicated pneumonia. This happened during the summertime, which is actually when pneumonia-related deaths are usually at their lowest. These 70 people died as a result of drinking the water, plain and simple. I would like to revisit this crime of poison drinking water again in another episode because it's a prime example of elite deviance. So be looking for that release if you want the situation from the perspective of your trusty criminologist. While Flint, Michigan is an obvious example of city planning gone lethal, I want to focus on the more subtle examples in society. So let's start by assessing one aspect of the quality of life in America. A good measure of this is to check the life expectancy. The average life expectancy in the United States is 79 years. That puts us at 46th place compared to other countries in the world. Now, the nationwide rate is of course an average of all the states, so it doesn't represent the life expectancy of every zip code in America. The states have variation in their life expectancy rates, with Hawaii being at the top at 81 years, and Mississippi ranking at the lowest at 74 years. The gap in life expectancy doesn't stop at state lines though, because even cities in the same state can have different life expectancies. People living in Raleigh, North Carolina can expect to live 80 years. And yet, if someone travels 100 miles east to Martin County, North Carolina, life expectancy drops to 73 years. Even in the same city, you can have different life expectancy rates, depending on your zip code. People who live in the southern part of Tulsa, Oklahoma, can enjoy an additional 10 years of life compared to their fellow Tulsans who live just 18 miles to the north. Apparently, the social environment can change a lot within less than 20 miles. In Miami, Florida, you can watch 11 years of life expectancy vanish as you drive 20 minutes from North Beach to the area near the Women's Detention Center. And in Las Vegas, Nevada, life expectancy drops 16 years in a 10-mile span. That's not even the most dramatic out of all these. In the book The Death Gap, the author David Ansel points out that you can walk just half a mile from the Washington Park community in Chicago to Hyde Park and watch life expectancy increase 14 years. If Hyde Park was a country, 
it would be ranked in the top 20 of countries with the highest life expectancy. If Washington Park was a country, it would be ranked 140th for life expectancy. What happens in a half-mile space to cause people to lose 14 years of life? Well, I'll tell you, it's not an accident. So let's dig this skeleton out of America's closet. Gaps in health across neighborhoods are caused by a variety of factors that are all related to oppressive policies and racist city design. Communities that have lower tax funds can't support high-quality education, and jobs are often harder to find. Unsafe or unhealthy housing exposes people to numerous health risks. Stores with fresh produce are scarce in many of these places with lower life expectancies, while convenience stores with processed foods and restaurants that serve heart attacks on a plate outnumber many of the healthy options. These areas are referred to officially as food deserts, which describes a place that does not have fresh fruit or vegetables within a two-mile radius. Supermarket chains have found that it costs 2-3% to 3 more to operate in low-income areas, and yet consumers in these same places pay between 5-10% to 10 more for their groceries than those living in middle-income areas. Price gouging by stores in low-income areas also includes raising prices on the 1st and 15th of the month to mirror dates that welfare is distributed. Grocers in the Mississippi Delta have raised prices on groceries when food stamps were introduced. If that's not a form of stealing, then I don't know what is. In 1986, the North Lawndale community of Chicago had 66,000 residents, but only one bank and one supermarket. The area didn't have many job opportunities, but it did have a surplus of businesses founded in exploitation. That area had 99 liquor stores and bars, 50 currency exchanges, and 48 state lottery agents. Now, if you're someone with a car, food and business offerings in your immediate area might not be a big deal. But if you don't have access to a car and have to rely on public transportation, if your area even has it, the likelihood of your diet incorporating healthy options is going to be very low. As it turns out, ownership or access to a private vehicle is important to your life expectancy because public transportation in America is a joke. City planners really have not devoted a lot of time to making sure a city layout would be accessible with or without a private vehicle. And state governments have largely ignored public accessibility unless it was to segregate an area. For example, take the state of New York about 100 years ago. At that time, many car companies refused to sell cars to black Americans. Thus, the primary mode of transportation for black Americans in the area was public buses. In an effort to make sure only white Americans with private cars could use the beaches in the state, the city planners made sure highway overpasses on the route to the coast were too short to accommodate buses, thus crippling public transportation from reaching these areas. The government was masterful in denying access to an outdoor recreational area, but it won't devote the same energy to increase accessibility to something that might help people like a grocery store with fresh food. The private sector has also had their hand in sabotaging America's public transportation. The car company General Motors, also known as GM, purchased control of electric trolley and rail systems in the 1920s. Then, the company dismantled them to try and force people to buy cars. 
Other types of poor city design that lead to lower life expectancy also include no dedicated spaces to enjoying the outdoors. Many of these living areas were built too close to highways, factories, and other places that pump toxic agents into the air. Racism once again shows its evil hand in planning who would be allowed different types of outdoor recreation. National parks did not permit black visitors or did not provide restroom facilities for black visitors for decades. Even today, less than 15% of visitors to national parks are black Americans, which shouldn't be surprising after generations of officials doing their best to make these places inaccessible. Not to mention, many national parks are essentially twice stolen land. The first being the entirety of America stolen from Native Americans. The second time being that Theodore Roosevelt robbed much of the land dedicated to Native Americans as reservations to create the national parks that would eventually attract visitors from around the world. Alright, sorry for that tangent, but it needed to be said. Back to the social detriments of health in an area. We also find that zip codes with lower life expectancies don't have access to quality health care. Besides that, hospitals are supplied differently depending on location. One out of every 20 counties in the United States does not have a single doctor, and more than half of all counties in the country do not have a pediatrician. The physician shortage is not limited to rural areas. It also extends to urban places. Physicians in private practice are seldom found in neighborhoods characterized by large numbers of poor and non-white residents. And now, I give you the crown jewel of lethal city planning, redlining. I would like to map out this concept to the best that I can in a short period of time. It isn't taught in public schools or most of the private ones, so buckle up for some jaw-dropping information. It's all fact, but it's disturbing enough to make you wish it was fiction. Redlining really explains why people in the same area of a city can have lower life expectancies than others. It's not that they're collectively making bad decisions that lead to an earlier death. It's that the only choices they have access to naturally lead to an earlier death. Historic city designing across the country was governed under the principle of redlining. Most of those designs have determined the current layout of many of our cities today. The term redlining denotes the practice of marking some areas of the city with red or yellow lining to indicate that these areas will have poor outcomes on people's health or that they are areas that are considered to be poor financial investments. This practice started back in the Great Depression under President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Soon after taking office, Roosevelt made it clear that he would be president of all the people, including those at the bottom of the economic ladder. In the working out of a great national program that seeks the primary good of the greater number, He's credited with addressing the housing crisis at the time and created the nation's first public housing for civilians who were not engaged in defense work. The legislation he introduced specifically prohibited neighborhoods from being mixed race. It allowed banks to deny mortgages to black applicants based on nothing income related and only on race. It mandated by federal law that white Americans would be allowed to live in the safest, healthiest, and most desirable neighborhoods in the nation and it forced black families into cramped quarters in poorly designed areas of the city, regardless of what their income could afford. 
The New Deal offered new programs to boost up the nation's economy while continuing the old practice of entrenched racism. By the end of World War II, the Lanham Act, the Public Works Association, and the U.S. Housing Authority programs solidified residential racial segregation in every metropolitan area they operated. World War II veterans returning from the war were offered mortgage stipends under the GI Bill, but only 3% of returning black veterans were allowed to utilize those. The practice of redlining was upheld by nearly all U.S. presidents, from FDR to Nixon. The maps dedicated to city design are available for public viewing. They include comments from city developers about the race of people they wanted to live in certain areas. I won't read those comments because many of them include derogatory comments and racial slurs about people that are not appropriate to repeat. But I highly recommend, if you have not heard of redlining or seen one of the maps used in this practice, please click on the link in my episode description box and check some of these out. Now just because I said historic maps doesn't mean this practice ended. As recent as 2020, lenders were denying mortgages for black applicants at a rate 80% higher than white applicants. Further research into these denials revealed that those who were denied did not have lower income, worse credit scores, or higher debt-to-income ratios, begging the question, why were so many people denied mortgages when they had the same financial standing of others? Well, the answer to that is just racism. Calculations show that black families have lost out on at least $212,000 in personal wealth over the last 40 years due to the practice of redlining. Nature really gave us an x-ray of redlining in New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005. I can't say it better than David Ansel, who said, Natural disasters have a way of exposing crevices in society. Decades of white flight and redlining left concentrated, black, impoverished neighborhoods below sea level in New Orleans. Of the 30% of New Orleans residents living there below the poverty line at the time, 84% were black. When the order to evacuate was given, the most vulnerable didn't have the ability to leave. Many had never been outside the city limits and didn't have a place to go even if they could get transportation to get out. Others were too frail or ill to move. At least 25% of New Orleans residents didn't have a car at the time. The Good Samaritan plan was supposed to save the city, but it relied on those with vehicles to help those without. So it relied on 75% of the residents to pony up and help 25% of the residents without cars. The result was 20,000 people seeking refuge in the Superdome, if that tells you anything about the values people had. We have no idea how many stories there are like Hardy Jackson. We got up in the roof, all the way to the roof, and the water came and had just, just opened up, divided. Who was at your house with you? My wife. Where is she now? Can't find her body. She gone. You can't find your wife? Oh, she told me. She told me. I tried. I, I, I hold her hand tight like I could. And she told me, you can't hold me. She said, take care of the kids and the grandkids and my kids. What's your wife's name in case we can put this out there? Tony Jackson. <laughs> okay, and what's your name? Hardy Jackson. Where are you guys going? We ain't got nowhere to go, nowhere to go. I'm, I'm lost. That's all I had. That's all I had. 
More attention should be on the social causes of health outcomes because it shows the entrenched racism and classism that run our system. It's evidence that our leaders at all levels have shirked their responsibility. The only reason some people live longer in one area of a city compared to another is that our cities were designed to produce advantage for some and disadvantages for others depending on the neighborhood. Even insurance companies are aware of this and have made it into a science to save money. Those promotions they offer about some kind of discount if you download their app is so they can track your location data. Depending on the type of insurance, if they track you driving through areas they consider to be dangerous, or if they track you spending large amounts of time in an area of the city considered to be harmful to your health, they can either deny you coverage or hike your rates up without giving you an explanation. The thing is, local, state, and federal leaders are not ignorant to income differences and social resources in an area. They're quite in tune with people's habits and living conditions. I would like to use the lottery as evidence for this. In 2014, Americans spent more than $70.1 billion on lottery tickets across the 43 states that it's legal. That's more than the entire country spent on books, sporting events, movie tickets, video games, and recorded music combined. Households in the lowest one-third income level bought over half those lottery tickets. Now, the government is aware of this data, just like I am. It's not hard to find. The state of Ohio decided they would capitalize on this information. State officials in charge of lottery sales released lottery ads on the same day government benefits came out, because they have research that shows welfare being dispersed and lottery ticket sales are highly connected. Did you also know that the state of Ohio made more money off lottery taxes than corporate income tax in 2009? This means people in the lowest income bracket carried more of the state's expenses than any corporations in that area. And Ohio's not the only guilty state. 44 states rely almost entirely on their state lottery sales to fund public education. In 1955, the 400 richest Americans paid over 51% of their income in federal taxes, which I'll give them is quite high. By 2007, the Americans occupying the same bracket paid under 17%. Tax cuts for the wealthy and corporations cost the U.S. Treasury $700 billion between 2001 and 2008. And in order to compensate the nation's budget for these tax cuts, safety net programs providing government assistance were slashed. Government officials are aware of how to increase lottery ticket sales, but they won't devote the time to make sure everyone has access to healthy food options within a mile radius Seems to me like they have more than enough of the energy and resources to devote to research in this area, but they are using it on marketing strategies for lottery tickets. And let me just say that lottery ticket spending can carry a stigma with it depending on who you talk to. It's a desperate prayer out of a bad financial situation. It isn't done for entertainment because movie ticket sales do not rise with lottery ticket sales in the same area. So don't judge someone for that especially when the government is devoting so many resources into wrapping up lottery tickets in a shiny package, promising a fortune with just a few bucks. I also don't want you to leave this episode thinking that all people on government assistance are just using the money for lottery tickets. That's really not true. And actually, 96% of food stamps are used to obtain nutrition for someone's family. And our rate of welfare fraud is less than 4%. So... Please don't leave with the impression that we need to get rid of government assistance. I am not for that at all. I think it's a wonderful program, and I'm really happy to know that my taxes can possibly go to help someone. 
I'm sure we've all been tempted by a lottery jackpot at some point. Even this past week, people flocked to buy a Mega Millions ticket as it topped out at $1.3 billion. Lottery tickets support the false notion of upward mobility. This idea itself is a branch of the American dream which boasts that if you just work hard enough, you can have whatever you want. I won't deny that hard work produces desirable outputs, but true upward mobility is another myth. 80% of black Americans and 70% of white Americans living in high poverty neighborhoods stay stuck in these same places for generations. The U.S. now boasts more high poverty neighborhoods than any time since the 1960s. What exactly is being done to improve the quality of life in this country for people who have lower incomes? The answer is not much. Almost half of all children under five live in poverty. So let me tie all this together. From the information in this episode, we've uncovered that life expectancy is highly dependent on your zip code. We've also proven how the government purposefully designed the layout of cities to have worse quality of life in certain areas. Further, the evidence is clear that the government is aware of spending habits that happen in disadvantaged areas and contributes to exploiting people instead of ensuring that they have access to advantageous options for food or jobs. Democracy would not be on the verge of collapse if we had some kind of legislation that said, hey, there needs to be healthy eating options within a walkable one-mile radius of every city center. That would knock out a lot of health problems itself by not forcing people to only have processed foods that are chock full of sugar. And yes, three-fourths of American foods on shelves have too much sugar. Which, as you guessed, is yet another episode to come. Well, I'm fired up and angry again, which is usually how I end these episodes after talking about all this. So hope that you all tune into the next one. Please subscribe and share the podcast with anyone you think might be interested. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you later.